move on to something that has come up. You put the word out there. Uh, if anyone would like to post any questions uh, to you and to this panel. And uh, there were some things that came up. And I would like to read out a quote from the Contemporary Issues in Learning and Teaching blog that is part of a module in the Postgraduate Certificate at the LSE. One of the posters writes, while universities emphasize both research and teaching activities as equally important in their strategies and future visions, academics reward systems are still based on research productivity. Teaching becomes an important objective of university strategies but is being measured through student satisfaction surveys in student numbers in terms of enrollment and application. Treating students as education consumers and customers rather than future generations that should be encouraged to develop their critical thinking further. The academic, on the other hand, has to prove that they are good teachers through student evaluations. Now, this has been written by one of the candidates on the PG Cert, who is an LSC fellow or associate, assistant or associate professor. So this is written by someone who has direct experience of this, has come up against it, and I think uh, highlighted some really interesting aspects here. Dilly, if I may ask you to address this, the PG Cert candidate in this case raises an important point. Teaching to some extent has achieved parity with research in that research and teaching performance are now both being monitored and measured. This is something Simon alluded to earlier as well. Uh, this illustrates the similarity between research and teaching. They are both now, one could critically say, performative neoliberal exercises, but there's also the inherent tension. What does this mean for the core values of higher education and academia? And what is the impact of this performative evaluation culture on academics' mental health and well-being? Yeah, so there are a lot of very uh, nuanced points <laughs> made true. there, and uh, I'll probably just pick up a you know, particular thread from it. Um, I, clearly, as Simon pointed out earlier, the external policy environment in which we're operating um, with the research excellence framework and teaching excellence framework as key, key examples and all of the sort of um, the, the, t the tables uh, that are created, um, uh, you know, highlighting which university is more successful than the other. So um, do uh, come down to various sorts of metrics. Um, and the National Student Survey on the education side is a, is a key example, which is uh, UK-wide and which where, where, where you can have comparative and do have comparative metrics from one institution to another. Um, my own view on the benefits and otherwise of having those sorts of metrics is that it can be useful to have metrics, it can be useful to have longitudinal metrics so you can see the direction of travel and it can be useful to have um, cross-cutting metrics where you can benchmark against other other areas. However, um, I absolutely advocate against drawing inferences that shouldn't be drawn from those sorts of metrics and in particular um, when it comes to uh, the point that's made here about sort of promotion based, being based on student um, evaluation scores, I think it's extremely important that we do not give too much credence to student exa uh, evaluation scores um, per se 
we know for a fact that those scores are affected, research shows very clearly, affected by the person's gender, by the person's um, ethnicity, um, by whether the person speaks you know, English, if, it, if it's an English study, uh, as their first language and so on. There are many, there are many factors. Um, so it's a very uneven set of judgments that you're actually drawing on. Uh, I just I'd like to highlight what I think is a solution to this this activity. We are in the policy environment we're in. We are, however, very intelligent groups of people who can have much more nuanced discussions than we are necessarily being asked to do by those outside um, about what we think good is. What 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 is good education? And, and this obviously speaks also to the education research relationship. So here, so here at the LSE, we've said good education for us is a research-rich education. We want a, the students' education to be research-rich. Um, and so for, for me and, and, we've, and Claire Gordon and I have talked about this in our study, Rewarding Educators and Education Leaders, um, that what we want is to have a much more nuanced picture, a picture of people's contribution to the uh, institutional mission uh, as in terms of the role that they have. And one of the best ways, in my view, that one can do that is through actually asking colleagues to, to write a narrative, a much more nuanced narrative, that may include some metrics, but where the metrics are not dominant, but which talk about the values of the person, the scholarship of the person, the impact of the person's um, scholarship, whether that's education-focused scholarship or whether it's a, a specialist research field um, on the educational provision, um, and that a much more rounded and nuanced story of the person um, co cross-correlated with, um, obviously, statements that one already draws from, from peers and from external evaluators and so on around the contribution of that person to the field makes for much safer ground than relying on, on student evaluation scores. So we are living in the policy environment that we're living in. We have to be realistic about the importance across the sector um, to uh, of these particular sets of metrics, whether they're for REF or for TEF. That doesn't mean to say we can't do what we do, which is to contribute critical, um, mm -hmm. uh, constructive comment on those things nationally. Of course, that's the sort of thing LSE wants to do all the time. Um, but given where we are right now, we can still, as an institution, and I believe we're absolutely moving in that right direction here at the LSE through things like our promotions committee conversations that we have, where we have a much more nuanced um, uh, discussion about the contribution of the individual in the round, um, and we don't rely on these particular sets of performative metrics. That's, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Uh, Simon, did you want to come? Yeah, I that? mean, I absolutely, I've got very little to add to that. I mean, I agree very much with Dilly on all points there. Um, I, perhaps I could emphasize a, a couple of things. Um, Metrics per se are not bad. It's not having, you know, I, I find it unhelpful that you characterise this as sort of neoliberal exercise. I think, it, it's, you know, it's too easy to throw it all out in a sense that f ignores the world before we had any metrics. Before we had any metrics, students did not feel empowered. We, we had very little on which to base any evaluation of anybody's performance, which allowed a lot of people to free ride and get away with doing terrible things in the classroom. And, you know, so uh, I think having, whether it's metrics on the research side or the teacher side, has actually provided much more accountability, legitimacy, uh, fair evaluation, equal evaluation. And I think it has had positive uh, dimensions to it on gender, for example, which has allowed 
female colleagues to demonstrate that they're outstanding researchers or outstanding teachers against what was very much an old boys network when you didn't have those more transparent, accountable measures. So I think it's not about metrics per se. It's about what we do with them, how we treat them, and how we measure things. And I think the, the, the contrast between the REF and the TEF I find really informative here. The REF is based on peer evaluation of actually reading research. It's not based on citation numbers. It's not based on what journal the papers are published in or what book series they're published in. It's very careful peer evaluation. And as a result of that, I think it's gained a lot of credibility and legitimacy, both within the UK and globally, um, because of, we trust our peers to evaluate at, at the quality of our research. I think TEF isn't at that stage yet, partly because TEF is based on a whole load of metrics that we quite frankly think is a load of baloney. The metrics involved in the TEF aren't up to scratch yet. That doesn't mean we throw them all out. I think that, that suggests that we should have people like Dilly and people who know about this helping to design this sort of stuff. And I know Dilly is very much involved. And I think we, we should get to a point where we can have a set of education-based metrics that have the same legitimacy and the same credibility that we have as the more research-based metrics around the REF. And I would then be more confident with what we're doing. In terms of our own promotion, um, again, before we had teaching scores, I remember my personal experience when we actually in introduced teaching scores. It was terrifying. The first year they introduced the teaching scores. And I remember in one of my courses I had great teaching scores and the other course I had terrible teaching scores. And I thought they were exactly the same. But actually it was a really good thing because then I went, what am I not doing right on this other course? And I actually then thought about this and talked to the students. And the next year I got much better teaching scores because I actually realized. So it's not necessarily about the comparing one person against another person in their teaching scores is about the context in which you have those scores for your teaching or the student evaluations of your teaching. And I know from sitting on the promotions committee at LOC, there's a lot of very nuanced discussion about that. For example, everyone knows that you on average get lower teaching scores when you're teaching a big service course to yeah. many people and it's compulsory and people are forced Absolutely. to do it and they don't like being forced to do stuff so they grumble as opposed to an optional course they choose for something that they really love and it's research-led and the, and the academics in the classroom talking about passionately about their research, they on average get higher teaching scores. We're aware of that. We know that. And, and mm -hmm. all of this information, all of this knowledge, all of this experience is taken into account when thinking about this evaluation. But I think rather than saying we shouldn't do it at all, I think we should do it, but we should be very careful how we do it and very nuanced how we do it. And And apply our own social science understanding and knowledge and expertise and how we understand yeah. metrics, what we can use metrics for, what we can't use them for, rather than saying throw them all out because they're neoliberal. Coming back to that point that the both of you have made, that it's not just metrics, it's, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Dilly, a, a narrative, a kind of reflective statement. Uh, one of the things in conversations, especially with early career academics uh, who, who's for a variety of reasons, have significantly more important pressures on their time, uh, or, or a different kind of pressures on their time, often feel that even engaging with this kind of uh, performative aspect of measuring and monitoring, while everyone, I think, you know, likes metrics, and, and there are definitely, uh, you know, good reasons to have them in place, uh, the performative aspect of them, or that they kind of encourage or result in inadvertently, whether it is teaching to the exam, whether it is spending time, you know, on the paperwork for promotions, etc. 
uh, or making submissions to the REF or ensuring that you publish in certain journals, etc. How, how do you see early career academics, mid-career academics factoring that into both on the teaching and the research side? Yeah, I mean, what I think you've raised a really serious point, a really important point here, is about the impact on stress, mental health and well-being as a result of these performance indicators. Uh, in and of themselves, each individually is reasonable if it's done properly and very carefully. But once we start adding them, uh, the additive impact on people is huge, particularly on junior faculty. And, you know, we picked this up. I organized last year um, meetings by cluster group of all the assistant professors at LSE, and Dilly and I are going to do the same this summer. Um, and just to hear how are things going, to meet them. We meet a lot of very senior faculty, but we don't get a chance to meet a lot of junior faculty here. And junior faculty, in a sense, are at the coalface, both on the ref and the tech, um, and in the teaching in the classroom and producing the research. And, and you did get a sense that the pressure was immense. The pressure was immense to, to, to produce world-class research, to get the, the major, past major review and get promoted, to produce excellent teaching because of the pressure of, of the student satisfaction and, and the turning around of assessments and so on. And, and I never felt that amount of pressure. I mean, it was more self-motivated pressure rather than external pressure. And that stress, I think, is really potentially very damaging. And I do feel for junior colleagues. So you've raised a really serious point. I don't really know what the answer is to that. And I don't think the answer is sort of more, you know, we'll give you more chance to have more support for your mental health. Well, actually, no, that, that's dealing with the symptoms rather than the causes. We need to actually think about what we deal with the causes there. And I don't really have a very good answer to that. Dilly may have a better answer. Well, I mean, I'd like to think I could solve it single-handedly with a great answer, because um, I think you make some extremely good points. Um, but I think what I would say is, obviously, we just need to keep under review how we can streamline and minimise this build-up, uh, you know, this accumulative effect um, through all of the sort of process and practical ways in which one can, can look at those things. Um, but also what's equally important, I think, I think for every um, faculty member and particularly for, for jun more junior colleagues who are so important, so brilliant, they're working really hard and do, doing great things for the school and, you know, they're going to be our future. Um, I think it's really important that we invest in um, in departmental leadership, in heads of department, in deputy heads of department, who feel really empowered and enabled to tell a better story than you will be judged by these numbers and, and are properly equipped. Again, uh, you know, some of the research that Claire Gordon and I have done has been into the experience of of uh, heads of department and just how difficult that sort of role is and how they're kind of slightly stuck between the things that are required from outside and the things that are, uh, you know, and, and, and their colleagues that are sort of asking things of them from within the department. Um, and I think it's really important that we give time, recognition, encouragement, developmental opportunities, peer engagement opportunities for our heads of department and other academic sort of middle leaders, if you like, or, you know, lead leaders uh, in, in our universities so that they feel able to really dis easily to dispel any myths that are associated with some of these kind of numbers and pressures because some of them are genuine, but there's also an overlay of myth 
around. So really, unless you do this, unless you get to this, unless you get, you know, do this with this number, you won't be able to. So some of that is just hearsay on the corridors, as it were, and not really related to the real position that senior leadership and other decision makers in an institution that wouldn't be their position on it. Um, so really encouraging and enabling our early career colleagues to understand that there are these things, however, there, are, there is support, there is encouragement, there is mentoring for them when they need it. I think that will help. So, Great. I mean, I, I, I very much agree with that. I mean, leadership roles are, are very important. Supporting our academic leaders is important. Um, I just, following on from, from what Dilly and I were just saying there, um, one thing that Dilly and I are both thinking about is how actually can we relieve some of the pressure on mm. on our junior faculty in particular, both on the research side and the teaching side. So on the research side, you know, we don't actually provide a lot of resources for our, for our faculty to do their research through the Staff Research Fund compared to many of our competitors. We're trying to find ways in which we can we can boost that and provide more resources because that if we can provide a bit more resources, a lot of the research in the social sciences is relatively small type research where you're often applying for relatively small amounts of money to do relatively small tasks, whether it's traveling for interviews or presenting research or data collection or, tr or employing somebody to transcribe interviews or, or put together reading lists. You know, so providing l more small type funds, I think, will, will enable, I hope, I hope, a lot of our junior faculty not to have to spend a lot of their time filling in forms to try and chase small amounts of money. If we can get rid of that, I think that could save them a lot of time. And then on the teaching side, I think what we've had, a culture at LSE has been a sort of gold plating of external um, external regulatory instructions where, you know, diversification of assessment has meant that we've then ended up with diversification of assessment within almost every single course we teach at LSE, which is not actually what the regulators wanted. We now overassess, and overassessment is is a terrible thing, not just for academics, but also for students, and Dilly, I'm sure, can elaborate on this. She knows better than I do, but I know it from a kind of at the coalface at LSE point of view. And I see that the overassessment isn't great for faculty are spending all of their time marking, designing assessment, marking assessment, giving feedback on assessment, rather than actually teaching in the classroom. And from the student side, they're spending their time, you know, staying up all hours to deliver pieces of assessment rather than actually thinking and talking and, and, and actually learning collectively, which is the, what we'd like them to be doing. Um, so, so, and I'll, I'll give you a concrete example of this. In one of these meetings of these, with these assistant professors, one young professor in one of our departments here, she said to me, I come from a mid-ranked U.S. university to the LSE. At that, you know, it was a good university. LSE is a better university. But there I was teaching twice as many hours as I teach here, but it was half as much work. And why is it half as much work to teach <laughs> twice as many hours at another institution than it is here? We make teaching very, very difficult, which is, for, you know, I remember as head of department saying to a college, can you teach another course? And they would say, oh, my God, the thought of what that involves, just actually all the paperwork or the, or, you know. So I think it's about providing support, providing the infrastructure around the support for academics, particularly junior academics, just get on with yeah. the teaching. All of our colleagues love being in the classroom. It's all the other stuff around that, which we need to get much better at streamlining. Yeah, I'd just like to thoroughly agree with that. Uh, that's absolutely something we're trying to encourage all of our colleagues, all of our departments to think about where are the inadvertent 
um, over assessment patterns, um, how can we provide more streamlined pathways through degrees. But we really encourage colleagues to have that conversation with us because we know it will be a real benefit for everybody in the long run. And as Simon says, it's not just educational, although clearly that's incredibly important, but it is to do with individual well-being, both for students and for colleagues. Great. That's, that's absolutely fantastic to hear about some of the things. Clearer messaging to faculty, streamlining of... Uh, you know, the paperwork and, and bureaucracy support and training for uh, uh, senior management in departments. And I think what was really nice to hear is acknowledgement from really senior level people like, like you talking about the fact that uh, younger researchers, younger academics today do have it more difficult. It's not about just putting in the hours and getting on with it. It is a different, different environment. And I think for a lot of people to get that acknowledgement from uh, senior researchers, from senior academics who've made it, does speak a lot because they're not always hearing that at the coalface or in the corridors. So I think that's really important. But at the same time, I think it's also really important to commit to some sort of timeline about that because every six months, every year, every cycle just kind of adds up for, uh, for a lot of our colleagues. Um, Thank you, thank you so much for that. Here is a quote from uh, Shaping Higher Education, 50 Years After Lionel Robbins, edited by Nick Barr, where Craig Calhoun, a former LSE director, writes about Robbins and some of the thinking behind the report. He writes that the report advocated abolishing the salary distinction between senior lecturer and reader, while making clear that research distinction was required only for promotion to the latter and teaching excellence was sufficient for the former. He goes on, every student should have a tutor or supervisor, Robbins argued, and this should not be allowed to degenerate into a mere formality. This was in 63, just to provide some context. Uh, and Simon, this is, this is a question for you, if this is the view that respected and eminent researchers and leaders of the university have, if teaching and research and the centrality of teaching was seen so much as a part of the history of the LSE, why do some of these ideas have you know, a more limited uptake today, if you even agree with yeah. me on that point? Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> Having been here for such a long time, I mean, I, I find it a bit surprising that that's how you would characterise the recent history of LSE. My experience is is completely the contrary, um, in that I, I think the importance of teaching and the focus of, on teaching has grown in importance since I've been here. We might not be there yet, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm very happy to acknowledge that. We haven't got it right yet. We still have a lot of work to do. But I think we're well past the conversation to say that, you know, LSE is just all about research, promotion is all about research, appointments all about research, academic careers is all about research. You know, as an undergraduate in the 80s, I remember showing up to see my tutor and he would say, he would often say, who are you again? You know, so that doesn't happen now. Uh, uh, so on average, I, I, I would hope. agree with that. Yes, yes, I would agree with that. Um, and, and I, you know. Well, one thing I would say about what is nice about LSE compared to some of our other 
British universities that I've got to know since I've been pro-director for research is, you know, we have a very flat uh, leadership structure at IOC. We've got nobody between heads of department and pro-directors. A lot of our universities have deans, um, and and that's one aspect. So we, we, we have this very tight relationship and communication between what's going on in departments and what the leadership of the school thinks and about those things. The second thing is we have people in senior leadership positions who are part of their academic career and expect to return to the back benches. I expect to return to the coalface, if you like. I mean, uh, and, and we have, a lot of us are, you know, in very recent years, uh, whether it's Dilly or myself or Eric uh, Neumann, a colleague, all of us have been... In, and David Webb, all of us have been directly involved in departments in experiencing teaching and research. And so I think we we have been part of the development of LSE over the last decade or so and have been part of that process of thinking about how do we make teaching more important both in terms of how we organise it, the resources we dedicate to it, both academic resources and professional services resources, and also how do we make it more part of the career structure. Um, it, it's not that long ago that part of your promotions package, you have to put your teaching. What what are you teaching? What's your what's your approach to teaching? What have you been teaching? What are your teaching scores? What's the self satisfaction What's the story you tell about your teaching? What you're doing? That's now part of the promotions process. That wasn't part of the promotions process when I first went through it, and I went through lecturer to senior lecturer to reader to professor. But that step from assistant professor to associate professor is an overall evaluation, not just of your research. It's also of your teaching and your approach to teaching and your attitude towards teaching. So, so I actually think we're far closer to this vision of where we want to get to now than we were even just a decade ago. Yeah, can I add to that? I mean, there have been uh, examples both at the LSE, perhaps not many, but one or two, and certainly elsewhere in the sector where, where there's a shift happening uh, continuously, I think. Um, of uh, very good researchers not being promoted because they did were not making a sufficient or appropriate quality kind of contribution towards the educational um, uh, side of, mm. of their work. And I think that sends a, a strong signal. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, across the UK and internationally and in some countries in a very big way, for example, in the Netherlands, there is a lot of cross-national and international uh, discussion about how we can better characterise the educational uh, input and impact, if you like, that an individual has, um, uh, and obviously move much more away from just the sort of reliant on these, you know, on evaluation scores and, and so on. Um, and I think those are pl those are certainly playing into decisions around promotion and reward. I think in in a really positive way. I think we have a way to go yet. I think there's always a lag, and I've seen this in other universities. There's a lag between in principle and in the paperwork and in the minds of the senior leadership team of where we are and what the sort of sub narrative is within uh, departments where some people will have heard a different narrative in the past and, you know, that only research is important and not education. There's a kind of time lag. And so we want to do, maybe this podcast will help. I hope it will. We, what we want to do is to really communicate with our <coughs> colleagues that education is absolutely seen as a vital uh, a contribution that, that you're making to the school. And we really want uh, to see as part of the development of your career um, ways in which you can kind of articulate that contribution, which we do see great examples of in the promotion committee. Um, that go uh, a lot, you know, uh, beyond the the kind of obvious sort of scores, metrics, and so on. One thing to that, I absolutely agree with what 
Dilly has said there. Um, I also would say that one thing I often say to junior colleagues is, you know, having now been in academia for over 20 years, um, you know, you might think and look at me and think that the biggest impact I've had on the world is through my research. But actually, the older I get, I realize the biggest impact I've had on the world has been through my teaching. Um, and because of those generation after generation after generation of teaching, and I'm still in touch with a lot of the alumni and former students that I've taught, and I, it's remarkable when I go and visit alumni groups or go and even visit people, um, uh, and, uh, you know, we we have speakers come in often, and they're very senior people, prime ministers or finance ministers or, or, or senior politicians. I'm a political scientist. Um, often they have, as part of their entourage, a senior person who studied at LSE, and they'll tell you, oh, I took this course on that. I did, That's really shaped how I think, how I work, how I operate. Um, and, you know, it's not just my former students, but everybody's former students. And you realize we are training the next generation, whether it's in business or in politics or in the third not-for-profit sector we're training the future of the world to shape the world as, as that's our strategy and so it's through that education process that we are having an impact on the world not just through our, our research and i think as often as a junior colleague you don't actually appreciate that that these people in your classroom with you mm. will go out there and do fantastic things and they'll take with them yeah. what they've learned in the classroom in terms of the what they've learned from you what they've learned from what they've been reading what they've learned from their peers and what they've learned as part of that education process so perhaps a, a new thing to measure scholarly impact. Yes, that, that absolutely. That kind of transcends <laughs> research, yeah. education, and really kind of looks yeah. at... Wouldn't that be one? That could be my next paper. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Would you all like to co-write it with me? I'm, I'm looking sure I'm at get you, a four in the ref. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you so much, Dilly, for joining us today, for taking time to discuss this highly relevant topic, navigating the teaching research nexus as an academic and sharing your views and experiences with us. As I'm sure you are aware, these issues are being debated hotly in university offices, common rooms, and journals. It sends an important message when the school's two most senior people responsible for research and education at the school are willing to sit down and talk about the tensions and complementarities of the research teaching nexus. Wading into thorny topics and answering some difficult questions when there are no easy solutions. Thank you all for listening, and thanks again to Dilly and Simon. <laughs>